Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today is our February Book Club Day. We are joined by the brilliant Dr author, and now New York Times bestseller, Uche Blackstock. Uche was here earlier this month to discuss her debut book, Legacy, A Black Physician Reckons with Racism in Medicine. This time, she and I are going to be talking all about Ruha Benjamin's book, Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want. It's an inspiring and thoroughly researched book on the power of everyday choices and how they add up in the direction of large-scale societal change. We talk today both about virality towards justice and injustice, the curse of American individualism, and how viral justice shows up in the sectors of medicine, education, and a lot more. There are no spoilers on today's episode, so if you have not read the book, you can still listen along. Make sure you listen to the end of today's episode to find out what our March book club pick will be. And a reminder for all of you, everything Dr. Uche and I talk about today on the episode can be found in the link in the show notes. If you like what you hear today, please consider joining the Stacks Pack, which is our community for book lovers. And you can find us over at patreon.com slash the stacks. By joining, you do make it possible for me to make this independent podcast every single week. And you get a slew of perks for yourself, like our monthly virtual book club, where this month we'll discuss discuss viral justice, you have access to our Discord community, you get bonus episodes, and you get shout outs on the show. It's only $5 a month, so please head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. Here it is, shout outs to some of our newest members, Kellyanne Tanetti, Maggie Johnson, Lee DeVoe, Betsy Loikow, Kendra Williams, Katie, Carolyn H., and Jessica. Thank you all so much for joining the Stacks Pack, and thank you to the entire Stacks Pack for making this show possible. All right, now it is time for my conversation with Dr. Uche Blackstock about viral justice by Ruha Benjamin. All right, everybody, it is the Stacks Book Club Day. I am joined again by New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Uche Blackstock, author of Legacy. Uche, welcome back to the Stacks. Thank you so much, Tracy, for having me. I'm excited to be back. 
I'm excited you're back. Since uh, I last spoke to Dr. Uche, she became a New York Times bestseller. So I had to really throw that in at the beginning because we are so pumped about that. Today, we are discussing Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. For those of you who haven't read the book, there's not really going to be spoilers because it's nonfiction. But just so we're all on the same page, this book is about sort of the micro actions people can take to make social justice change that is impactful and will grow in size like a virus as the title viral justice. Um, So in the book, she talks about medicine. She talks about policing. She talks about education. um, And we're going to get to all of that stuff. But Dr. Uche, we always start here with these book club episodes. Generally, sort of what did you think of the book? Yeah. So I actually got a pre-read of this book because I wrote a blurb for the book. and But when I read it, you know, it was just pretty amazing because I feel like it was like in a really kind of dark time. You know, a lot of what she writes about was during the pandemic, the early part of the pandemic. But just the, this idea to focus on like the little bright spots of how we could actually create change left me feeling like really positive and inspired. And so that's what I really liked the most about this book. And this like, I love this the idea, just her description of what viral justice looks like. Yeah, totally. I think I was sort of torn on this book. I love the idea. I generally really liked the book and I really appreciate like Ruha Benjamin as a thinker and as an organizer and as a person who is in conversation with so many people whose work I love and admire. I mean, in this book, she mentioned like five or six people who have been guests of this show who I like Miriam Kaba, you, Derek Purnell, Imani Perry, Tressie McMillan. I was just like, hey, friends, everyone's here. So I really liked that. My I think my biggest like qualm with the book is that it feels a little 101 in places and a little bit of like... I'm going to teach you about racism. And I think like knowing Ruha Benjamin's work, I know that she's a real serious academic. And I think maybe that was the point of this book, but it just like felt a little like maybe it was doing too much almost like trying to cover too many bases instead of going like really deep on some things. And I think maybe because I'm not the target audience because I have read so many of the people that she cites that I'm like, okay, well, I read Dr. Uche's book. So like, I know a lot about this. I'm like, I've read Medical Apartheid and I've read all of these people. So this book is like maybe too much of an overview for me. Um, But I did really like it. And I really do appreciate her writing and how she sort of like tells all of these stories and puts it all together, I think that's like pretty difficult to do. So I I think I would say like if I was giving it a grade, I would give it like a B, B plus. Mm-hmm. But I, I think because I admire her so much, I was hoping for like an A plus, 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 plus. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I, I do think that she wrote it for a broad audience. Like yeah. I, think, I, I think it's for folks that, you know, this is like their first time coming to this. Like even though she is an academic, Right. Right. And usually writes for an academic audience. I noticed that her work, you know, has become like more serving more of a broad readership. Um, And so I think for the broad readership, like this book, actually, like you said, like it is like 101, but it also has like chock full of information. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree like that. So that's why I'm sort of torn because I'm like, it's a little 101 in places, but also like there are a lot of things I got out of this book or like pieces of information that I learned from this book that I was like, I mean, you can see here, people can't sit at home, but like, these are all my tabs in the book. Like, yes, same, exactly. We both like tabs are like crazy. I finally, I usually don't take notes in my books, but I started taking notes in my books because of this one. Like, so like, I'm, I'm not saying that like, there's nothing good in this book for people who have done other reading, but it just like, 
at times I felt, I think also maybe that it was because like the tone is so hopeful, which I know she says is a choice, but I'm such a negative person that I was like, okay, Ruha, like we're not going to cure racism by like planting a garden. You know, like I'm just such an asshole. <laughs> I know, I know, but, but she's not always hopeful. I mean, there's sometimes like there's, there's some areas of it where I'm like, okay, like you, you really are being a real, you're being a realist about this. Yes. And I you think know, those are the parts I like the most. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. So, um, but I, but I, but I know what you mean. It's, I mean, yeah. I mean, the cover itself is a hopeful cover, right? right. Like, yeah. <laughs> and she says she's hopeful. And I think like one of the things that's really interesting when we think about this book is that she wrote it during the pandemic after Black Lives Matter summer got started in response to what she was seeing. And I think that in that moment, when I go back to that moment, and I'm sure when you go back to that moment, there was a sense of like, of hope as a black woman that like maybe people were going to listen to me or like maybe people were going to take my work seriously. And like, I got an influx of followers and all these people telling me like, we're going to do the work and we really care. And so I think that like that tone shows up in the book. And there's a line where she says like, something's changed in the air. And I think like maybe and on her part and certainly on my part, there's some naivety like to think that, things would change that quickly. And like, I think it's just sort of like a slap in the face to read this book and be like, why was she so hopeful? Well, like, why yeah. were we so hopeful? Well, it's, especially like in, in, you know, early 2024, where we are right now, yeah. looking back yeah. and, and, and seeing like politically what's been happening over the, especially over the last few months, like just the rollback in DI measures and just like putting that in the context of this book being like, oh, Yes, you were hopeful, but you know what? People still suck. I'm sorry. Yeah. People, people still suck. And they really um, were seeing that like in like the SCOTUS decision and, you know, at Harvard with the president, president right. Claudine Gay. Yeah. Yeah. And like even just like I'm thinking in 2020, I think I'm sure she probably turned to the book or maybe she turned in the book around the time of the Joe Biden election in 2020. But, you know, that was the whole like listen to black women. Black women saved us again. Like there was all of that energy that is just like really gone right now. And so I think reading it now, it just felt like, ah, Ruha Benjamin, I want, I want you, I wanted you to tell me the truth. And like, you got wrapped up in it too, but I understand how, like, it's not like she was purposefully being overly hopeful. Like, I think she genuinely believed as a lot of us did that maybe like it was time for a change. And I think maybe, you know, we didn't think about how the other side was also wanting a change. <laughs> like, well, yeah, that they were going to fight back as hard as the we backlash. were going to fight. Yeah. And I mean, she talks about, I don't know if she actually says this word for word, but one of the notes I took was like viral justice versus viral injustice. And like, as much as we want to do like these little things to make changes, the other side is doing these little things to make changes. They're challenging books or challenging each book individually. Like that is a viral act of a viral injustice, right? And that each book ends up becoming mm. all of a sudden now we can't teach any black authors or like now we can't teach any queer authors. And that virality like isn't necessarily good or bad. It's not a moral or a value judgment. It's just a, a technique or a tactic to sort of making change. It's that's so interesting because like the way that she chose to frame viral, like with viral, like this viral justice, but to do it in a positive way. I initially thought that was interesting because as a doctor, right, 
when I hear virus, I think bad. Right. <laughs> I, I always think bad. Like right. viruses, viruses are never good. So to reframe it um, in this way, but then also to say, yeah, the other side is also doing small things that actually end up adding up to create like a big bad difference. Yeah. And so just for listeners, like if maybe you didn't read the book or just to kind of recap, when she's saying viral justice, she's talking about virality as something like that we can learn from and that it's a model for spreading justice and joy. And that by doing these little tiny things or small community things that that you can inspire and invoke change in your community that could eventually like grow bigger and larger and take on you know, become policy or whatever that looks like. Maybe it's not policy. Maybe it's it changes how things are done at your school, which then maybe gets brought to the school board, which changes how it gets done in the district or what. You know, I don't know how these things work, but that's sort of the premise is that something small can spread, you know, if it has support and that and that each person has their own plot on which they work. So, you know, my plot is this podcast, I think, yes. <laughs> like talking about this stuff on this podcast and having experts on to explain a lot of this thinking so that it can inspire other people. And obviously, Dr. Uche, your plot is medicine. Yeah. And so and so that's sort of like the premise, uh, overarching premise of the book. But on the flip side is like this idea that change is not inherently good, that there are changes that happen that are bad. Or, I mean, I guess it just depends on what side of the change you're on. I think some people would say book banning is fantastic. Those people who want a book ban, I would say not so great. Not a great idea. Yeah. It, and can, I, can I just yes. add that um, I, when, I, when I think about the book and the issues that she, you know, we think about social justice and all of the issues that she addresses that you mentioned earlier, like, you know, education, mass incarceration, health, right? I also think like sometimes it feels so overwhelming to people to think about like how can you create change? And I think kind of what she's trying to do in this book is to talk about like what are you things you can do like on a manageable, smaller mm-hmm. level to feel like like you are making a difference. Because you really are in the big scheme of things, but like here are here are examples of little ways in all of these different areas that you can right. make a difference. And a lot of times, like when I talk about, you know, health equity advocacy or like how can we make a difference in terms of healthcare outcomes people are like it feels so overwhelming and I'm like I know it really does but look look at what's happening hyper locally or locally and maybe things seem a little bit more manageable for you that way yeah I think that's right like that it's like trying to inspire people where they're at and not saying like you don't have to become a congressman to like (laughs) to like make change or you don't have to become the director or the CEO you can make change on your local or like communal level. Exactly. Um, And one of the, so she does outline what the three types of movement work are. She says it's dismantling harmful systems, providing for needs, and then creating alternative structures. And my reading of that is that all three of those types of work are all places where you could make, you could make your own viral justice moment. Um, But all three of those things are needed not necessarily from you, individual person impacting change, but all three of those things are needed to continue to do the work of, you know, rebuilding a world that we want to have. Um, I think one of the things that I wished was more in this book, I wish there were more examples of what people had done and how that had impacted 
or like how it had become viral. You know, like mm. I wish I wish she took like she talks about the solitary gardens and I was like, "Oh my god, this sounds amazing." And I also love in the book how she outlines so many organizations. Right. She names so many organizations and, and lifts them up in their and their work. And lifts them up yeah. and like you can go and google them and find them and be like, "Oh, maybe I can, you know, start like maybe I can join in this moment." But I wished that she explained like what happens for the people who are incarcerated who are engaged with the solitary gardens and how that work has changed maybe their lives. Does it change recidivism? Does it not? Like, does it change policy within prison? Does it not? Does it change something about the environment? Like, I just wanted to know more of Mm -hmm. what kind of impact these little things could have, because I think that would have inspired me more. Yeah. I I think like it felt more like this was a snapshot, like a snapshot in time. This, these are the little things that people did, but there was not much like follow up in terms of you're saying like, what was the, what was the impact or like, how was it, how was it viral? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But when she does give us those moments, I'm like, oh my God, I love this. I could like read a whole book of just like you list, like each essay is just you telling me what these people did and how it changed things. I, I mean, I, I'd be curious to hear what you think, because you're a doctor and you were, you know, you're an ER doctor. So you were really like on the front lines of COVID. Did you get the sense like in 2020 and in 2021, and I guess even up through now, that COVID was different as far as its impact on how people interacted with each other or like thought about each other? And has that changed over time? Like, like, do you mean just in terms of, like, of socializing or? I think like- I mean, like, I guess in my mind, COVID, you know, held up this like magnifying glass of all the mm-hmm. things that were wrong. But I also think that I sort of took stock of what it meant to be in community with people and in the mm-hmm. world. And I'm curious if you felt that from just your your patients and, and oh, the yeah. people around you. Yeah, I mean, I think like it's like this, again, this idea of a virus, like it's, you know, it's, it's something that is infectious that can be passed on from one person to another. So then this idea of like what you do as an individual, it matters and it has impact on other people and it can actually have a ripple effect. So that's why like, you know, this idea of like community care, I feel like came up a lot, especially with regards to communities of color, because we knew like we were more likely to be working in positions where we were, you know, we were exposed to the public. We were most likely to be in multi-generational housing. And so it really did matter like how we behaved in terms of like, you know, wearing masks or like getting vaccinated, all of that. So yeah, I, I, I do feel like those conversations came up and she talks about like, you know, a lot of the mutual aid that happened, um, in the pandemic. And that's, I mean, to be honest with you, that's how, because I was very much in the academic silo, that's how I learned about mutual aid organizations. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of people are bringing food to elderly people so they don't have to go out to get it, right? So they don't expose themselves. Right. So I found about these like little ways that we can help each other and be in community with each other. And even though, so I've been a doctor since 2005, <laughs> um, I had not in my like career ever had a moment like that where we actually were thinking about how we behave in community to other people. Do you feel like people are still on that, still have that energy now? Or do you feel like that's, no? No, because I feel like, especially in the United States, like we're such an individualistic society and Mm -hmm. one that is like propped up on this idea of personal responsibility that people are like, okay, as soon as things like seem like they're okay, like, okay, all right, back to, and I also think it's human nature. It's like back to, you know, how I was like living before this, like, you know, this disgusting bug came, came around. (laughs) So I think 
like just hearing what you're saying, I think for me, and I have been talking about my abolitionist journey and like doing a lot of reading around that and thinking a lot about it. And I think for me, the hardest part is that I am an American. I was born in America. I was raised by people who were born in America. My family has been in this country on my dad's side, I think, you know, since slavery, my mom's side since the early 1900s. Like, I have a lot of like American energy. And I think what's the hardest part about abolition work is that it takes a community-minded approach to everything. And I can be extremely selfish and I can be extremely individual. And I think like reading this book... I think that's part of where my frustration came was I'm like, this is too fucking hopeful. This isn't going to work. Like we're horrible people. We need to be told we're horrible. And like, I don't, I just, COVID was definitely a magnifying glass for so much that's wrong. But I think like in this book, this interconnectedness that she talks about, the Siamese crocodile, the one stomach that fights over the food, like that is so me. And it's so hard for me to think outside of that. And I think- that was one of the things that I took from this book where I was like, okay, maybe you're being harsh because you're not where you, maybe you're not where you think you are in your Mm. head. You're not actually there like in your heart. Like you haven't actually come to like the community work yet. So that was a bit of a wake up call for me. Yeah. I mean, I think of course, because like we absorb all this cultural messaging around us that is like anti-abolitionist all the time. Like like, that's what we grew up with from the media, from our families, You, you absorb it all in. But like, I remember, um, and I write about this, like in March of 2020, I was working in urgent care. And even though it wasn't the ER, we were still seeing so many patients with COVID. So I started writing about what I was seeing that I was worried that communities of color would be disproportionately impacted. And so I remember I was interviewed about it. And and they were like, what do you think? Like, what's what's going to be the cost of this pandemic? And, you know, it's like lives, but also humanity, because I knew I knew just like how we saw like white New Yorkers literally like flee New York City when like in in April and May of 2020, like people who had money and people who have means were like, I'm out. (laughs) Right. Like, I don't care about all the other folks who have to stay here. So like, you know, that is just like who we are fundamentally as or as Maram Kaba says, U-S-I-A-N-S. U-S-E-N-S. U-S-E-N-S, yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard because it's like, I want to be a good person in community with others, but I'm also like, I don't want to die of COVID. You know, like I understand that impulse. Not that anyone wants to die of COVID, right? But just like, uh, it's really hard when, I I think what this book does really well is remind the reader that we have an obligation to be in community with each other if we want change. And that that sometimes means like doing a thing that is not necessarily personally the best possible thing for you and you alone. And that is very, very, very hard to wrap my personal brain around, but I think it's probably hard for a lot of people, um, which which sort of bring, this is the chapter I'm really interested in talking about. Obviously, I want to talk about the medicine chapter with you, but the lies chapter, which is about education. Because I know a lot of people who listen to this podcast are educators, whether they're librarians or teachers, or, you know, I know we have preschool teachers, we have high school teachers, we have academics, we have, you know, a lot of people who are in the education sector. And one of the things that made me feel rage in reading this book and thinking about like 
allies in education is how schools can be teaching anti-racism. They can be in liberal pockets. They can have, you know, the best of the best, whatever, but they're still criminalizing black and brown children at a higher rate. That they're still, even in these spaces that think that they are you know, I don't want to say woke because that's so pejorative now, but think that Pro- they are progressive. Like progressive. progressive. Exactly. Think that they're progressive. Teachers whose classrooms, they think that they're progressive. They think it's a diverse space. They think they're doing all the right things. And then you get this quote in the book that says, for every 20 black girls in school, two will be suspended compared with one out of every 167 white female students. And this is going unchecked in these spaces. Like to me, that is that individualistic where it's like every teacher is like, oh, well, I assigned Toni mm-hmm. Morrison, so I'm doing it right. I believe that black art matters. And it's like, but baby, you just sent the two black girls to be suspended I know. and not the 167 white girls. Right. I actually had it posted on that page, too, <laughs> for that quote. Um, yeah. But that's why like a lot of times, and, and then this pertains to every social institution, education, healthcare, you know, criminal legal system, but like really thinking about what happens like at an like, ideological level. Inter- I call it the four, like the four eyes of oppression. I don't know if you've heard of this. Like, no, say it's, it. Uh, so ideological, inter- interpersonal, institutional, and, uh, oh, and internalized. So they're, they're the ways, all the, all the levels at which oppressions work, Got the it. oppressive systems work. And so a lot of times I, I think, you know, maybe educators, they think about these systemic, they think about it in a very lofty way, what racism looks like, right? Like these covert policies as opposed to also what happens on an interpersonal level, like how they're inter. So who cares if you are, you know, you have an anti-racist curriculum, but if you are making these decisions that are like anti-black with regards to your patients, with regards to your students, right? Like, you know, um, sending them to detention or, um, you know, yeah, just like kicking them out of school and and not recognizing how your anti-blackness plays out interpersonally, Mm -hmm. then you are like, it doesn't matter if you're thinking systemically or institutionally. Right. If interpersonally, if you, you're perpetuating what's happening institutionally and right. people don't recognize that, they're like, oh no, I am like, I'm so progressive because this is what I'm doing in my classroom. But then you're also doing this other piece too. Right. Right. And that also like that working on yourself, because I think a lot of people I hear that, like I'm reading the books or like I'm, I joined a group or I, you know, go to these speaker series or whatever that I'm working on myself. So therefore I'm doing the work when in actuality, that's the very, very start of the work. And the real work is how are you engaging in these spaces when you are the person with the power, right? It's not about what you do when you are the person who is on the receiving end of the power. If you're a teacher in a classroom at a public school and the superintendent or the district tells you something, you are not the person with power. So how you react in that moment is not the question. The question is, how do you then turn that around on your students or their parents or whatever that looks like? Yeah, exactly. And and so there's one thing um, I talk about a lot in the talks I give about these equity choice points, like these points, these areas that, you know, these instances where we all, regardless of what role we have, if we're a teacher, we can either like make a decision that goes with the status quo 
or we can make a decision that's more equitable, right? Mm. And that where we're thinking about like, what's going to happen to my student if I'm, if I'm going to put them in detention or I'm going to suspend them, right? Like really to step back and say, okay, this is like something I've been, I've been making these decisions about these students, but I need to do it differently. So like there's an equity choice point that we all, we all have opportunities, what, you know, and power is relative, but we all have power within whatever role we have, especially teachers. Yeah. So I challenge teachers like or educators rather, you know, to think about what are the opportunities where they can really engage with these equity choice points and like whether it's what you decide to read or a decision you make about a, about a student. Yeah. And I think it's hard again Maybe this is just me, but I, my my feeling is it's hard sometimes to be in power when you are sort of in the middle, right? Like where you're like middle management or you're a teacher. It's like you have, if you're a teacher, you have power over your classroom, but you don't have complete and total power over your classroom because there's people above you. Right. But I think sometimes it's hard to own the power that we do have. And I think this book is really an invitation for that, right? It's she's really telling us, look, this is your plot. Your plot is your classroom. There might be constraints about what you can do. Like you might be in Texas or Florida where your governors are telling you, you can't teach that or you can't talk about that. And I don't want anybody to go to jail or whatever over something like that. But there is power that you do have in your classroom. You get to decide what punishment looks like or what rewards look like. Those are in air quotes. Um, You get to decide what, as you're saying, what is equitable you get to decide these things and that we, when we do have these moments of power, we absolutely must take ownership of that and treat it with respect and be gentle with our power and be like forgiving and generous with our power and not become the dictators of our classrooms or our schools exactly, or our patient rooms or our podcast or whatever, whatever your plot is. Yeah. Yeah. These are the things I think about all the time because I have two little black boys. They're seven and nine years old in elementary school, they go to a majority black school. Most of the teachers are black, but like, I was very intentional about that because I was, I was worried about how they, and I'm still worried. I still get worried about how they're going to be treated, um, you know, differently, um, you know, punished more. And we have the statistics that back that up other than their white peers. Like it's a real thing. Well, I'm currently going through a situation with my kids, white school, and I am, they're in preschool and it's not great. And, I will be making some changes for their elementary school uh, because it's not okay. And my kids are, you know, if you, they're, they're mixed and they're very light and like, they don't present necessarily if you don't know that they're black, but I'm so hypersensitive to it. I'm so aware of it. And honestly, quite frankly, even if the teachers don't think of them as black, no kid deserves to be treated that way regardless, you know? And so it's definitely like a challenge. Education is really a challenge. And, and she talks about in the book, like allyship. And I love what she says about allyship because she basically shits on it. She basically says that, uh, let me, let me find this quote because I, 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 I've always felt icky about it. Like I never like when people tell me they're an ally and I never like, like to call myself like, an ally. Like, hmm, hmm. Yeah. Here's what she says. She says the language of allyship doesn't make any sense as it implies dominant groups are doing something for oppressed ones, but don't need saving themselves. Which is like such an LOL line. Like I literally was like, oh, 
boop, there it yeah. is. Yeah. Because there, because it still implies that the dominant group is trying to dominate in some way, like that they're still flexing their power. By saying you're an ally, it implies that like you're still better than the other, the group that you're an ally to, or like that you're other than them instead of like in the trenches fighting for the thing because we're all connected. I know. I actually, um, I actually like this term, even though people don't like it, accomplice. Mm-hmm. And be- because... It, it already, like, says, like, the system is already broken. The system right. is already sick. And, like, we're working together to, like, subvert the system. You know what I mean? Right. People are like, oh, accomplice sounds, like, so, so, so negative. But I feel like allies just sounds too... And I'm actually... I'm, a, I'm much more of, like, a positive, <laughs> optimistic yeah. person than I think you are. You are, but, you are. But, but allyship, I'm like... When I see someone has, like, a BLM ally in their, um, like, in their Twitter handle, I'm like, you better stay away from me. Yeah. Because I do not trust you. Because you should... That's not something you should have to announce. Just right. do the work. Just do the work. Yeah. Exactly. I agree. I, I, the word allyship, I've always disliked it. I think because when I first came to it was years ago in college, I was a theater major. And so I had a lot of queer friends, like a lot, because that's sort of like a safe space for a lot of queer people. And, you know, we used to say a term that was really inappropriate for women who had a lot of gay men friends. And then it shifted to like other terms that were stupid. And then ally sort of became a thing that people were really into long before I heard it used in a racial space. I don't know if that's actually true, but that's just how I came to it. And I always felt like it seemed silly. I was like, why do I have to tell you that I think gay people are great? Like they're all my friends. Like this is my community. I shouldn't have to announce that. I shouldn't have to separate myself from that. Obviously my experiences are different because I am heterosexual, but like that doesn't matter. That's not relevant to me thinking that they should like, have rights. And like, that's not relevant to me wanting to go and like go to the pride parade. Why should I have to announce that? Why can't I just be amongst the people that are my community period? And so I've always felt weird about like the performance of allyship and the Mm -hmm. way that she writes about it in the book. I was like, thank you. Cause she really put words to what has felt so icky. Yeah. And I think also like that time when she was writing about this, like in 2020, like we saw a lot of that performative allyship, like from individuals and from organizations. And like in retrospect, looking back, you're like, okay, that that truly we thought it was performative at the time. And it really was. Right. And like we see it every year on MLK Day when the FBI is like, love you, Martin Luther King, bestie. Hi, boo. I have a dream. And it's like maybe this Anybody can be an ally if the FBI can be an ally to Martin Luther King in the year 2024. Like, so it means it means no, nothing, nothing, you know, nothing. she has this line about how or she talks about and this is a tied into this allyship thing about how racism is productive. And I think like that's why people want to identify as an ally, because they want to feel like they're doing something. But she says, um, until we reckon with the fact that racism is productive, we'll continue to be caught off guard by its persistence and reissuance. Productive, not in the sense of being good, but in the literal sense of being able to produce things of value to some, even as it wreaks havoc on others. These productions include everything from segregated neighborhoods in which white assets appreciate and black assets depreciate to the carceral system that preys on black communities while providing employment, lucrative contracts and cheap labor, especially for rural America. She goes on to say a lot more, but I think that that sort of part of it is like racism as an ecosystem, which means if you're not Mm -hmm. being racism against or you're not the top, top, top that's making all the money, you have to find your place in it. And a lot of people choose to be like an ally, which is sort of like a lukewarm 
position in the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. Um, let's take a quick break and then we're going to come back and talk about medicine. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Okay, we're back. I want to talk about medicine. We've got a doctor. We've got it. Not only do we have a doctor, we have a formerly DEI doctor. So I want to start in the first, first chapter in weather where she talks about weathering, which is all about like how black... Uh, what's the woman's name? Geronimo. Um, Arlene Geronimus. Arlene Geronimus. She's like the researcher behind this idea of weathering. She has a book that just came out, I think, last year called last Weathering. Year. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It'll make your stomach hurt because um, because of how how bad. Like it, it's good. Right. It just is like. Ooh. But what she talks about in this chapter is data as a barrier to actually helping, that it's a tool that ends up funding more research, but not a tool that ends up getting things done. And that was a real circle flag, draw on the page, scream into the void moment. 
because we have all of this research, but what has it gotten us? And I want to know what you think about that because I know as an academic, as a doctor, you guys need a lot of research, but also is it fixing things? Yeah. And it, and it's especially frustrating when it comes to, to racial health inequities, because we've literally have like 30, 40 years of research <laughs> that show <laughs> that there are these differences and the differences are worsening. Um, mm. And so I, I, I would love, and it, what happens in these academic silos is everyone's like talking to each other about this, but no one's, but, but not no one. There's just like a very little action. Um, and so that's why, like, I think it's just so important for us to like get out of these silos and talk to like a broad audience, talk to policymakers about like, what do we think are things that can make a difference? So like the omnibus bill, which has like, been trying to be pushed through Congress to prevent like the high black maternal mortality rates, like that's something that actually, and it's an intervention that can make a difference. Mm-hmm. If we had more like policies like that, well, that has to get approved. It hasn't gotten approved yet. Representative Lauren Underwood from Connecticut, she's still trying to push that through. But there are a lot of folks, especially in this anti-DI environment, that don't want to push that through. But yeah, it's super frustrating to have all of this research about that documents the disparities, but doesn't really document the interventions and what works and what doesn't work. What can people do? Like, what can a doctor do if they have the information, but they don't like... Is there viral justice moments that can be done like by individual doctors or like what what do we yeah, do? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Like I think, you know, you're married to a doctor. So uh, yeah. you kind of know that sometimes like what happens in the process of becoming a doctor, you totally like lose that your three-dimensional self without you were mm-hmm. like doing a lot of community work. You're doing like a lot of really great things before medical school, but then you got super busy. But I think like doctors need to be their patients' advocates. Like who mm-hmm. is like the number one advocate for a patient? It should be the doctor. So like literally there are a lot of like patient advocacy groups out there. There's stuff happening hyper locally and locally in communities that I feel like even like food sovereignty or like housing, um, housing insecure, like insecurity, like there are groups that deal with those. Like as doctors, we really should be involved in those like local grassroots movements. Like there's no mm. reason why we shouldn't be like, it's not about what's just happening like in the exam room or the clinic room. We need to think more holistically about how we care mm. about patients. Yeah. I always think about, so a few years ago in California, marijuana got legalized mm-hmm. and my husband, as you know, is an OBGYN. And something that came up was that if women tested positive for marijuana, it used to be something that like automatically went in their file and then child protective services because it's drug use, et cetera, et cetera. And then the law got passed and individual doctors were sort of left to make that call, which I was very upset about, obviously, because it (laughs) felt like a not good thing to leave up to individual doctors. And it felt like a very dangerous thing for women and their newborn babies. And I feel like people who are not necessarily very closely tied to the medical system, who just like go to the doctors for their checkup or whatever, don't understand how much power doctors have on something as small as that in a state where it's legal. Right. Well, I mean, you know, like Dorothy Roberts write about, writes about this, like, like how the healthcare system also is like an extension of the carceral system. Mm-hmm. And so that's how like physicians can be complicit in police that. Officers. Right? And, right. Police officers. Right. Exactly. And so like there was even a study that came out, I think it was like two years ago that showed that black 
Black birthing people are much more likely to be drug tested than white birthing people, even though when you look at the results, white birthing people are more likely to test positive for, for uh, drugs in, in their in, in their screen. But again, like we actually need for physicians in that position where they're getting a positive drug screen, they need to be surveilled themselves. <laughs> they need to be surveilled, right. but they also need like some sort of support and context for what do you do with that, right? Right. Like there needs to be some oversight where individual healthcare providers are not making decisions that could totally derail someone's life, take their child away from them. They end up in prison, right? Like right. literally it has like repercussions that I think that health professional probably doesn't even think about. Yeah. Yeah. The There's a statistic in the book about how racism is the risk factor for mm-hmm. black birthing people and not race. Mm-hmm. And that African born birthing people and white USA born birthing people have the same maternal mortality risk and that black Americans just one degree. Like it doesn't, it doesn't mean if you have a black parent who was born or an African parent who was born and then you were born in the U S once you were born in the U S it's done for you. Mm -hmm. But if you come in from outside or you're a white USA born woman or birthing person, you like, that's crazy to me. I know. And that's why, like, you know, when I talk about like racism versus race, I think it's really important that we don't like conflate the two terms because like for a long time, like in med school, I was learning that like race itself is a risk factor for certain diseases. So I actually thought that meant, okay, there's something like biologically wrong with black people. Like like sickle cell. Right. Exactly. But really what it was, it's how racism, you know, exerts its like horrible force and, you know, powers on, on our bodies. Like it's racism through practices and policies that makes us sick. And I think that stat that you use is such a powerful stat to say, like when African immigrants come to this country, like they're doing, they're doing as well as, as white folks giving birth. But after one generation, literally they, their, um, their complications worsen and the, the outcomes worsen and they are doing as poorly as black Americans. But I think that's like that, that's the example that you need that shows like there's nothing wrong with black folks inherently. There's something very wrong with the environment that we live in that is yeah. like, it's compromising our health. Yeah. I mean, the, I had my first time having like my aha moment around racism mm-hmm. versus race was around blood pressure. Mm. I think it was in a Harriet Washington book. She talked about how Black people in Africa do not have high blood pressure. Because I, I thought my whole life, I know. it was like, I know. if you're black, you just gotta, I just gotta, you know, I, for, I was like 20 being like, I'm worried about, I'm, I was a dancer. <laughs> I taught fitness. Like I have great blood pressure, but I was like, I am worried about my blood pressure at 20 years old. Every time I go to the doctor and get my blood, pre- I always, my blood pressure goes up because I'm stressed out that I'm going to be like, and I learned that this wasn't even fucking real. I mean, it's I real, but it wasn't real because of who, what is inside of, it's not real because of what is inside I my know. body. It's real because of what is outside my body. And that was so upsetting and also so illuminating and yeah. powerful for me to know that information. And then seeing it again here with with this African born versus USA or yeah. USA born, like that same statistic. It's just, you can't argue with that, right? Like you, can't. you could argue other things, but that's like, hey, we're all black. Right. But Why people, are we dying? But people, but people will try to argue that. 
I'm sure they will. I'm sure. I mean, racism (laughs) will try to, oh, on Twitter, they'll argue. Listen, I I put on threads the other day that it's not okay for book podcasters not to read their author's books. And people were fighting with me about it. And I'm like, I'm like, wait, what? Authors. People were trying to rationalize it. I was like, ooh. Like, I'm like, you'll fight with me about anything. My friend Cree was like, you should just put up water is good for hydration and see what people I say. I was that. like, no, yeah. because people will be like, Gatorade is good for hydration. Water's not the only thing you could drink for hydration. Who needs to be hydrated? Um, but yeah, that the blood pressure thing. And now this one, it's just like, and I feel like sometimes I need the reminder that there's nothing wrong with us because I know there's nothing yeah. wrong with us. But sometimes you feel like maybe we're doing something wrong. Like maybe, maybe it's us. And like, it, I know it's not, but it doesn't always feel like that because it's like, well, then how come we keep dying? I know. I know. It's just, I, yeah. yeah. And that's why, like, you know, I try to use my platform just to, to educate even, I mean, just like regular folks about this because I want people to know, like, it's not you. <laughs> it's the system. It's it's the it's environment that we live in um, and it's working as designed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other part of it is like, and you mentioned this in your book, I think as Black people there is shame around being a statistic or like being part, being racismed against. Like there is yeah. a shame and and like that we want to explain that away. And as I was reading this book, you know, I had twins, I had a C-section and I was like, oh, I'm not a statistic though. Cause I had high risk. I had a high risk pregnancy. Like they were twins and I, I did have high blood pressure and like all this stuff. And like, I think in my case, it's extremely, I think I got extremely good healthcare cause my husband yeah, is a physician right. on, in the department of which I, you know, like, so I don't think that I, I, I always felt extra safe as yeah, a black woman yeah. in that situation. Cause you know, whatever, but I still had the impulse to be like, well, my C-section was, was like, I needed a C-section. And I think like, I don't know where that comes from, or I, I guess I do know where it comes. I just, it's hard to grapple with that. I think as a person who believes that racism is real, but also doesn't want to feel like I'm just part of this horrible system. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that's the whole, like one of the eyes, the internalized eye of repression. I mean, sure. the, yeah, that's like that. That's the internalized work, right? Like this like cultural messaging that we get and that we have to like actively work against. And we're like, no, we don't want to be a statistic, you know, but it's hard to think otherwise sometimes. Right. But I guess maybe there's also like some pride in being a statistic because it's like maybe my being a statistic will help change the thing. We don't I don't want know. You to be a, ideally, we don't want you to be a statistic. No, we don't want to be a statistic. You're right. You're right. I was trying to I was trying to be positive. It doesn't work on me. Yeah, being positive yeah. is not for me. Um, but I do want to talk about vaccine hesitancy because she talks a lot about how it sort of pathologizes black people. You talk about it too in your book and how it's always on like, well, why don't black people want to get vaccinated and like yeah we understand bad things happen to black people but like don't they know that this is good for them or whatever so I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts yeah on that I mean you know what like I was very understanding of black folks who were like I don't want to get vaccinated and I recognize that like people needed multiple conversations before they made a decision because it's right. like how can you have like centuries or decades of, of, of like mistrust or like no connection between healthcare environments and your community. And then all of a sudden people are like, okay, you need to get this thing done. And this thing was developed super quickly and yeah, it works and just go get it done. And so I was just like, really like, I get it. I understand people's concerns. Like if I can, I'm here to answer your questions. Um, if you want to wait a little bit and think about it, sure. But you know, there is, it, it is time sensitive, but yes, we have this like 
horrific history where we have been experimented on, exploited, where when you go seek care that you're often not listened to or you're ignored. So I understand like how in this moment you're like, I don't know if I want to get this vaccine. And I, and I talk about the story with my barber, who's mm-hmm. like, literally, Uche, like, you're the only doctor I know. I don't have health insurance. I see you on TV in the barber shop. And like a year later after the vaccine rollout, can I talk to you about getting the vaccine? We talked for an hour and then he got vaccinated. Right. And so I always say, like, I wish everyone had a Dr. Uche Black. So not like there's anything yeah. special about me, but just, but just someone- an accessible doctor. Hello. Exactly. That they trust. That that they trust. That they trust. And and that that was so clear when the pandemic started that there were so many people that didn't have a health professional that they trusted. Yeah. And I think, you know, in the book, she brings up the point that, like, it's not on Black people to trust the medical system. It's on the medical system to make us trust them. Right. Like, Like you guys have been fucking up for centuries and now all of a sudden, oh, I owe you this thing. Like, you sterilized Fannie Lou Hamer. You practiced gynecology on enslaved women without anesthetics that you had. Like, right, right. You like, did so, you know, obviously Tuskegee, like there's so many examples. I mean, so Henrietta many. Lacks, like it, it, you wrote about it in the book. There's a whole book called Medical Apartheid. Go read that. Like killing the black body will tell you more. Like there's right. just so many places that black people have been screwed over by the medical system that this disingenuous argument of like, well, why don't black people trust vaccines? Right. Was like. Well, it's so gaslight. Right. Well, exactly. And that's the whole thing about like, I mean, that's so it's so American, right? Like to put it like a personal responsibility to say, oh, it's because individual individual mm-hmm. mistrust and t- instead of what Bruja talks about this inst- institutional tr- you know, trustworthiness that we that institutions have not proven themselves trustworthy ever. So, you know, it's really the institution's fault and not the individual person's fault. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're like running out of time, of course, and there's so much in this book. There's a chapter called Hunted that's about like mass incarceration, but the part of it, we've done a lot on mass incarceration on this show. So I'm going to kind of skip over that part, but we have episodes with Derek Purnell, Miriam Kaba. We did a whole episode on a book called um, Prison by Any Other Name that's mm-hmm. all about like other, you know, so like there's stuff, there's resources there that cover a lot of what's covered in that, this section. But the part that I was really shaken by that has always been very upsetting to me is this sort of communal effort to punish and surveil our own communities and neighbors. We sort of got at this a little bit with the education, definitely with the doctors, but like these citizen apps, Nest Camera, Nextdoor, and that white women are sort of at the forefront of this kind of work. I think that white men are doing sometimes way more violent way more covert, way more quote unquote legitimate versions of this because they are more in these powerful positions or whatever. But I do think that it's really interesting that white women have sort of become the protectors of the home front, if you will, and are all up on these apps and all up in this like tattletaling on on the neighbors. And I don't know, I don't I don't have anything smart to say about it, but it definitely was something that I was circling big yeah. time in the book. No, absolutely. And, and I mean I and I love like the work Rua has done with like, you know, AI and technology and how technology actually can be used for bad and how it can actually worsen situations or, you know, for black folks. And that's such a great example of of how these apps are used and still use. Like I feel like my neighbors you know, are on these apps and then posting to our listserv about shooting that happened at, you know, two in the morning. And this is what the suspect looked like. And it's just like, okay, this is, this is too much. But again, it's like these apps are like, 
perpetuating the like white anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. That, that people already have. Right. <laughs> right. And like, they're doing all this work of like, this is what the person looked like. It's like, you're already pay- paying the police plenty of money to do that job. You don't need to do the job for them. Like you don't need to, they're not outsourcing to you unless they're giving you a cut. There's no reason for you to be policing your neighbors. And uh, it's just, no, I know, I know. I, I even had like a, a neighbor say, oh, I saw someone use one of the parking spaces in our parking lot who doesn't live here to run to the supermarket to like, a, a, um, to, to get groceries that you, and I said, yeah. I said, what? So, and, and the person seemed to be limping or, you know, be an older person. I'm like, wait, wait. So we are surveilling right. people that are using our parking spaces because they can't get to a, a closer, a closer spot to the supermarket. Right. 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 And like, so what do you want to have happen to that person? Yeah. Like, that's the real question is like right. with all of this. So, okay. So you found out somebody did a bad thing. They parked in a spot that wasn't theirs to go to the store. What is what is what is it that you want now? Do you right. want me to go track them down and beat them up? Do you want me to have them arrested and sent to prison? Like, do you want me to make them move their car, go to the grocery store, find them, move their car, and then like, do you just want to ruin their day? Like, so what? So what? I and I think I like we're so obsessed with punishment and criminalization, mm-hmm. yes, and and surveilling each other and being in each other's business. Is it's just like ick. It's so icky and it's getting, it's gotten out of control and it's only getting worse. Like I know. the monitoring of every single thing and the tattletaling. Like, I'm just like, right. and, okay. And, and, and unfortunately the te- no, technology is not a panacea and it's, pro- it's going to make these kind of um, interactions worse and amplify them. Yeah. Yeah. A- and then the, the last thing we didn't really talk about, and I'm not really an expert here. And I think that I have a lot, the place that I have the most to learn was like the grind chapter about sort of like labor and union mm. stuff. Cause I don't really understand that. I think I, that's probably where I need to focus like my next line of thinking. You're just, and I know so there's smart. some great books. What? So you're so smart. Well, I just, I don't, I don't get it. I'm like, I've never really, I'm, I'm in a union now. I'm in SAG-AFTRA oh. for the first time because of a thing that I did, but I am not really in, like I I support unions. I'm excited about unions, but yeah. like, I don't really understand the workings of them because mostly I've just been sort of a freelance person my whole life. But I think like, and this is probably my fault too, like we're not talking enough about workplaces as spaces for abolition, mm-hmm. like that we're not thinking about them outside of outside of workplaces that are like doctor's offices or education right. where where there's a direct line. But like, who's hustling, who's making the money, how are they making the money, how are they being treated? And there's that story in the book about the CEO who's like, okay, I'll make $70,000 right. and everyone laughed in his face and now it's like, they make billions of dollars. Right, it, like, it, actually, it actually was a positive thing for the company as a whole, right? Yeah, yeah. And like that scarcity as a company ethos is like not ideal. For me, actually, just doing the health advocacy work, I became more in tune with what's happening in workplaces because there were so mm. many low income, low wage workers that were being exposed to the virus and not having employer sponsored health care, not having right. family paid and sick leave and thinking about like, how can we make workplaces safer for the workers mm. that really put their lives on the line? And so for me, it was like the pandemic that kind of got me more attuned to what is happening in in workplaces and how can we keep workers safe? Yeah. And, and then also like the gig economy part of it too. Oh, that, I mean, I that. did, I found this chapter probably to be one of my favorites because yeah. I think I knew the least right. about it. 
but I also feel like I have the least to say about it because I, you know, it's like sort of trick. I'm still, I, that's yeah. where I've got to go next. Yeah. I want to end with this quote from Miriam Kaba that about what needs to be done. Of course, Miriam Kaba is like one of my personal heroes amazing. of a thinker Me too. and human. And she's, she's amazing. Amazing. If you haven't amazing. listened to her episodes on the stacks, they're some of my favorites because I'm obsessed with her, but she's also funny. I thought, I didn't know. I thought she was going to be serious. No, she's a great time. I'm not surprised because I, I follow her tw- her Twitter X feed and she yeah. mis- makes me laugh all the time. All the time. So funny. So smart. Just uh, a dream. Okay. Yeah. I'll leave a link for everything we talk about, including that in the show notes. But here is what she says about kind of like what needs to be done. I'm actually super bored with the concept of performativity. I think about sites of struggle as just constant learning, being super curious, come with what you know, be willing to learn and be willing to be transformed in the service of the work. Mm. And I just think like, that's really it. Yeah. We got to come with what we have. We got to listen to who's already there and we got to just be curious about how we can do it better. And if we can do that, like, I think there is so much possibility. And I think possibility is the thing that I love the most about abolition work. It is the hardest part for me, but it's also the most thrilling part. And I just, I think like for all the things that I did or didn't like about this book, I think the idea of it and like what it made me think about, I'm super, super grateful for. I don't know if you have anything that you want to add. No, I mean, I'm also, I mean, I'm also on my abolition journey, um, just learning more about it. And I love how that kind of was always in the background um, in this book for thinking about like how systems work or should work. Um, And so, yeah, that was kind of, that that was the inspirational piece for me. Yeah. We sort of talked about the cover and the title already. I like, I like the cover. I think it's cute. It's it's striking. Like I'm like when I see it, I'm like, oh, I like this. And the ti- I think the title works, but I don't I don't have strong feelings about either. How about you? I well, I love the cover because it is so striking, and I love yeah. the profile and the the Afro textured here and the the um, flowers and leaves growing out of it. Um, yeah. It actually was an inspiration for my title. I mean, for my cover, I I sent it to my graphic designer. I was like, oh. I want, no, I, I was like, just so you know, this is a cover that I really love, even though it doesn't look like anything like this yeah, cover. Yeah, it doesn't, no. And then, you know, the viral justice piece. Yeah, I mean, I think I love like the idea of what she wants it to mean. Yeah. Um, and like the inspirational piece about how we grow the world we want. So, yeah. And I guess the grow is sort of tied into yes. the like, the like botany of the person. Yeah, I do. It's such a striking cover. It definitely stands out. And I do, I do think it's really beautiful. Um, okay. We're done. I think we're done. Do we have anything else we want to say? No. Okay. Everybody, if you haven't read the book yet and you just wanted to hear us talk about it, go read the book. And while you're at it, make sure you go get a copy of the New York times bestselling book legacy, a black physician, Reckoned with Racism in Medicine by Dr. Uche Blackstock. Today's guest, you can listen to it on audio. She reads it. I did some listening. I did some reading with my eyes. Both ways are fantastic. Dr. Uche Blackstock, thank you for being here. Thank you, Tracy, for having me. This was fun. Thanks. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Dr. Uche Blackstock for joining the show. I'd also like to say thank you to Shelby Mislick for helping to make this conversation possible. All right, drumroll, please. It is now time for our March book club announcement. We will be reading Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. This best-selling and national book award novel follows a seemingly generic man who wants to be the protagonist of his own life. 
and finds adventure in a nearby restaurant. You'll have to tune in next week on March 6th to find out who our guest will be for our March 27th discussion of Interior Chinatown. If you love this show and you want inside access to it, you want to support the work that we do here, go to patreon.com slash the stacks and join the stacks pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the stacks wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening to us through Apple podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, threads, and TikTok, and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And you can check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas.